welcome. This is the Sydney Ideas Podcast, bringing you talks and conversations featuring the best and brightest minds at the University of Sydney and beyond. Welcome to Sydney Ideas. My name's Ariel Bogle. I'd like to acknowledge that we're meeting today on Gadigal land. I'd like to acknowledge traditional owners of Australia and recognise their continuing connection to land, water and culture and pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging. This is a Sydney Ideas event, Rise of Machines, and we're going to be diving into the immense topic of artificial intelligence. You know, something we already use in so many ways in our phones, probably in our insurance policies to some degree, our computers, but of course this topic has been of immense interest in recent months with the emergence of large language models like ChatGPT and also these really uh, striking narratives around the the end of the world, doomsday AI. So we're going to be getting into all of this, whether it's hype, what we really need to be paying attention to, and hopefully dispel some myths too with this um, panel, which I know in very high demand um, (laughs) in the media. and They're they're appearing left, right and centre at every university, I feel. But uh, so this panel today, we have to my left, Rebecca Johnson. She is an expert on the ethics of large language models and generative AI. And she spent a year at Google Research in the ethical AI team and responsible AI division. She's also uh, finishing up her PhD here at the University of Sydney. Then we have Dr. Sandra Peter, who is the Director of Sydney Executive Plus at the University of Sydney Business School, and her research expertise and practice focus on engaging with the future in productive ways and the impact of emerging technologies on business and society. And finally, uh, we have Jose Miguel Bello Viorino, who is a research fellow at the Law School, and his current research focuses on regulatory approaches to AI, especially on how to deal with risks from the operation of AI systems. So to get started, I think we need a bit of a lay of the land. So Sandra, can you sort of walk us through, I guess, a little bit of history of AI and help us define the terms so that we can get this conversation started? Thanks, Um, and thanks for the opportunity to share some of this with you today. We are overachievers here at the University of Sydney, so I'm going to attempt 10 slides in like five minutes or less just to give you an idea of what what this AI is. And um, don't let anyone tell you this is a new thing because it's been around for ages. If anyone asks you trivia night for, you know, that party you're going to after this event. Um, AI started really back in 1956, and that is quite a while ago. That is 68 years ago, more or less, when in August, back at Dartmouth in 1956, these guys got together, and it was a group of 47 blokes, blokes only, who got together to basically invent the idea of artificial intelligence. The whole deal was that we could put every aspect of learning, every feature of learning, we could describe it so a machine could understand it. Well, Sandra, what the hell does that mean? I still don't know what AI is. So, um, uh, fair warning, there are cats in this very brief presentation. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) The idea was we could explain to machines what we know. If we try to explain to a machine what a cat is, we would tell that machine that a cat has four legs and it has whiskers and it has ears and it has eyes and it's got, you know, a fluffy tail and and all that. We would encode into the machine everything we knew about cats. Uh, And there was a lot of money, a lot of excitement uh, that was going into AI. We're in the 1950s. But very soon, some cracks started to appear in this idea that we could teach everything we know to machines because um, there's a lot of cats. There's the 
fat cats like that one, and there's brown cats and white cats, and there's them bold cats that give people with allergies, right? And very soon we realize that, hey, we can't teach computers everything we know. We have a common sense problem. So we went about it in another way. In universities, nerds like us said, hey, there's another way we could do this. We could just show a computer a whole bunch of pictures of cats that have the label cat on them and get the computer to figure out patterns in these uh, pictures so that every time we would show it a picture of a cat, it would code to the label cat. This is simply figuring out what are the common patterns that kind of make up a cat. So all this idea of, of learning from the machine is finding probabilistic uh, functions that associate cats with the label cat. Um, lo and behold, one more thing had to happen because this is like the 80s. That had to happen. Us taking pictures of cats with, and I don't have my phone, but it of iPhones and putting up all them pictures of cats, you know, even the Picasso ones that have got the, the weird eyes and everything. Um, so we throw a lot of cat pictures at the internet. And at this point, you're going, Sandra, I still don't bloody understand what AI is. Please explain this better. So I'm not going to go at it with cats because they're quite complicated. I'm going to go at it with the number eight very quickly if I'm trying to get the computer to recognize the number eight. I give it a whole bunch of number eights that I've written by hand, and I say, figure out what an eight is, and how is this different to if I show you pictures of seven or six. All the computer does, and this is the magic that underpins everything that you see and we'll be talking about on this panel, is the computer tries to figure out how dark each pixel is. For every number eight that I give it, tries to figure out how dark each pixel is. So for a computer, the number eight, or eightness, becomes a string, simply a string of numbers that tells you how dark each pixel is. That's it. That is eightness captured in a string of numbers. So when I show it a seven, it goes, well, the likelihood of that being an eight is very low because it doesn't map to what I think eightness is. That's it. That's all the magic. And also, welcome to image recognition of the 80s and the 90s. Fast forward very quickly, we're still doing the same thing. If I take slightly more complicated than the number eight and less complicated than a cat, I take this guy, I hear his name is Will Ferrell, he also dressed up as a cat, as you can see in that fourth picture up there. Mm -hmm. But if you try to recognize Will Ferrell, you're doing the same thing. First thing you do is get rid of color, because for image recognition it's easier to do it without a color, then I try to tell how dark each pixel is, and Will Ferrell is like really complicated. So we do some fancier maths here, but I'm still trying to figure out how dark each pixel is and each pixel around it. I do more fancy maths to map out his whole face, which is really complicated. Then it gets even more complicated, because remember, I'm just trying to tell how dark each pixel is. So with bloody Will Ferrell, I can't tell where his face is and where the telephone pole behind him is or the bush behind him. So I have to tell the computer, well, look for, I, I give it a mask and I say, look for a thing that probably has like two eyes and a nose. So it figures where that is. And then Will Ferrell's face becomes, lo and behold, a bloody string of numbers that <laughs> makes him different to um, the cat that we had in the previous picture. But that's it. That's all the magic behind the technologies that underpin everything that we do today um, with large language models and generative AI. Because what we can do, if we can... Uh, figure out these large patterns in data. And remember, I'm not storing the eights in the data, I'm not storing Will Ferrell's, just the likeness, the probability, the statistical probability that that is Will Ferrell. I can now ingest the entire internet into this. And that is, remember, not just Wikipedia, 
but also that bloody subreddit that you got last night that you sent that you know you shouldn't have sent to someone, all of that goes in, <laughs> right? And I encode that, uh, I encode probabilities of what word goes next to what other word. If I can do that, I can ba basically build a glorified autocomplete. I can predict what the next word is likely to be. And with ChatGPT, we do some fancier mathematics on top of that, and there'll be opportunities to talk about it. But I can tell what the next word is. It's not a knowledge model. It's a language model. I'm simply predicting what the next word is. And on top of this, we build ChatGPT, and we build all the fancy things that give us image recognition and everything else. And the point to leave you with is that we got really good at this over the last couple of years. And when I say really good at this, it's basically indistinguishable from things that are actual pictures. And to prove that to you, and I'm going to end on this note, but to, to prove that to you, I've got three pictures here. I'm going to try to have you guess which one of this is um, fake and which one of this is real. These were generated with the same types of AI that were now, instead of guessing whether or not it's Will Ferrell, using that to generate new faces. First one, and I'm going to have a show of hands in the room, first one, a, let's say, uh, first one is a young human rights lawyer who just won a big case. <laughs> Real or fake? Fake, actually. Who thinks they're fake? He's fake. About half the room thinks he's fake. Okay, second one is Sydney Uni graduate. She just finished um, up at the, the School of Education. She's looking forward to becoming a teacher. Fake? <laughs> Whoa, Sydney, you graduate. I'm sorry, <laughs> honey. Um, last one, uh, super-powered researcher, um, knows everything under the sun, is amazing at everything he does, works at the library, or at least used to. Fake? Whoa! <laughs> About half the room think he's fake. Well... We're going to give it away. The first one, this person does not exist, something to play with you. It's just a random face that we generated. The second one, you'll see a montage of all completely fake faces done by the New York Times, because the New York Times has a lot more money than the University of Sydney and can generate a lot of those faces. Um, and the last one is um, Pat Norman. He works on our team, and we made him do that. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, Pat. <laughs> A short intro to, to AI. But when you hear all we say, that's what, that's what underpins it. Thanks so much. I really appreciate the, uh, that walkthrough. And I mean, just with the faces, as a journalist at ABC a few years ago, we were like looking at a, bot, a sort of botnet of Twitter accounts, I suppose. And at that time, with you could tell AI faces because the eyes, if you lined all the photos up, the eyes were always in the same place, no matter the face. But it's getting better now, and that's not always the tell now, unfortunately. So they're getting, getting a bit smarter. A bit, not smarter, just a bit better. Um, so, Rebecca, I think let's just talk about some of these really key narratives at the moment. As Sandra laid out, obviously, we're, there's been so much attention paid to large language models just in the past few months with ChatGPT and the launch of a kind of arms race between all the different major tech companies to launch their um, LLM products. But I guess the other narrative that's come out is all these sort of godfathers of AI, Jeffrey Hinton and others, talking about the doomsday scenarios, warning that AI is going to 
kill us all. And then on the other hand, there's another group of AI sort of experts, I suppose, who are saying that this is just hype ways to market this kind of technology. And what we really need to be paying attention to is the harms of AI today. You know, labour costs, the way it has potentially like hoovered up the entire internet, contrary to people's copyright and personal interests, things like this. So just give us a bit of background to these two defining narratives. It is a good question and it's something that I have thought about a lot and there's actually no single answer that I can give you and that's the case with a lot of questions about AI. There is often no silver bullet answer to any of these things. Um, I do agree with the second group that you spoke about that uh, a lot of the doomsday predictions is um, profit-driven. You know, it's a good way to kind of draw attention to your product, um, potentially mode out competitors and whatnot and that definitely is a concern. But I think that there are other motivations as well. Um, so Jeffrey Hinton, I think, is a, I mean, I really respect him as a, as a computer scientist and is, you know, super smart person. But for Jeffrey Hinton then to come out and say that he feels that, you know, there's, there's something more going on under the hood, um, I really tried to figure out why he was thinking that because I've spent a lot of time working with these models and I don't see any sense of that whatsoever. And it made me really get back to thinking about how we each approach problems differently in the world and how we teach people to approach problems differently. So, you know, at university, the, the world's so complicated at the moment. We can't post, gone are the days of, you know, Isaac Newton and these solo kind of people that can do all sorts of things like Leonardo da Vinci and whatnot. So now people go and they spend many years learning perhaps computer science and they learn a particular style of thinking, which is very much... Um, you know, trying to come up with a solution to a problem and thinking through how something might be and then trying to understand something by the function and the behaviour at the end. And then you've got people coming up through the humanities that see human humanity as messy and, and complicated and see all the different tensions and forces that create who we are as humans. And so people that come up through that kind of style of thinking tend to think about the world a little bit differently. And... Why I think that's important when we're talking about why people like Jeffrey Hinton are seeing, um, feeling that there's, you know, sparks of emergence in, in AGI is because that they're looking at the behaviour of these systems and from the behaviour they're inferring something that's under the hood that I don't think is there. And so I do think that some people do really believe that. And then, of course, there's the other part that, you know, it's a big, powerful technology. And like with any big, powerful technology, whether it's, you know, taking away the sentient Terminator style, anyone who's in charge of a big, powerful technology and has access to it more so than some of the other nation states is going to be in a much stronger position. And that's not new. That's That's been going on since humanity's had civilization. So I think a lot, all those different factors come into play uh, with that. Mm. I mean, just to bring in Jose Miguel, I think like there's, as Sandra was pointing out, this tech has been around a long time. Do you think we're on the back foot with regulation? Like maybe give us a bit of a picture there, given your expertise of the regulatory approaches that are being taken around the world compared to Australia as well. There is this idea in regulatory theory that you, to regulate something, you need to understand it. And the problem is with disruptive technologies, the moment you know enough about it, it's too late. So it is like a very complicated um, question. And if any one of you have any ideas, by the way, the Australian <laughs> government has a consultation out, so you can send to the federal government your views on this. Maybe what I can give you is a bit of 
what are other states and jurisdictions doing around instead of my personal ideas, which probably are not that relevant. Um, so pretty much everybody is trying to regulate AI in one way or another, and regulate doesn't mean necessarily passing laws and just doing hard regulation. It means trying to control it in a way that people behave in the way that it's not bad and it's kind of for the common good. And the way to approach it, most countries that are trying to think about it are doing it on the basis of risk. And risk meaning how bad can things go when you put an AI system to the things that humans did before. And probably the one that people heard about before is the European Union. They are trying to do this, what they call the AI Act, which is pretty much a comprehensive norm that is going to look at AI systems and say, well, you cannot develop or implement or deploy an AI system that is going to for example, do massive supervision of everybody, facial recognition, and monitoring everybody at the same time. That is forbidden. No, out. On the, at the other end, there are some AI systems which are in your everyday life that we do not care about because the risk is so low. So if Netflix recommends that you watch one movie that is actually terrible, worst case scenario, you waste two hours of your time. So, well, from the, for the common good perspective, it's not that bad. But there are some, some systems that are high risk. And high risk meaning that it may have effect because of the cumulative effect, it can go very wrong, or it could be really bad for one person. For example, the ones that you can use in health, that's the typical example. But also the ones that are about giving mortgages. If your bank is using an AI system to classify you in one group or another and say you deserve a mortgage or you don't, that can go very wrong cumulatively because you might not find a mortgage at all even if you are willing to pay. So the EU is saying, well, for certain types of systems, you have to meet certain requirements. And requirements about transparency, testing, you have to prove that they work in the same way that we approach, for example, the regulation of drugs or medical devices. We want to know that they work. But at the same time, we need to know that, they, that we can monitor them because some of these systems keep learning over time. So that's the EU approach. And who else is trying to do some kind of regulation? So the US is taking a completely different approach, also based on risk. But what, is that, what it has done is create standards. So saying, well, we are not going to impose on anyone what they should do, but you're going to, which what we're going to do instead is say, you should be doing this, and it is voluntary if you do it. But if you do it, we are going to say, well, you're okay with the standards that we have created. And for example, for the government of the US, for the federal government, if you want to sell something to the federal government, it's going to have to meet those standards. That's a different approach. Um, another big one is China, and probably I would leave it there, which is has to try to do a comprehensive approach, but with different pieces of legislation and standards like in combination. And China has a kind of an objective, a clear objective, which is to be the leading regulatory space by 2030 in the world. And they are doing that, developing many standards, but also trying to regulate certain things that could be problematic. For example, recommendation systems on the internet. Why? Because they believe that if many people are recommended to behave in a certain way, and it creates some kind of dynamic that might affect the social stability. So how to regulate it? We don't know yet. Is that normal? Yes, it is normal. Are there ways to do it? Yes. And Australia has to learn its own path. Mm. And Sandra, what, what's your thoughts about regulation? I mean, there's been a lot of attention paid when people talk about AI systems to bias that emerges from the training data, um, bias that emerges from 
the people that create the system, you know, the questions they ask of their technology, and then, of course, the bias in application, how it's deployed, you know, what tasks is it put to, is it put to, I mean, we've just seen in Australia, RoboDebt, I guess, is an example of an automated system being used. We can discuss the ethics of how an automated system can be used. Where does the liability come in? Should it be the company that developed the system? Should it be how, who deployed it? You know, I know it's a very complicated that, That's a question, lot of questions. <laughs> Um, let's just talk about liability. Um, Where should it lie? Let me start a little bit with just your question about bias. I think it's a very important one because mm -hmm. everybody's heard about bias in these algorithms and bias we have in algorithms. And um, we did introduce the idea of bias in algorithms when we moved from explaining things to the system to large patterns of data. So whatever those large patterns of data contained in them, we reproduce in these algorithms that look for probabilities. But the thing becomes really interesting in the generative AI conversation when we talk about bias and is the data biased. Of course, the data we feed it is biased, like the internet, right? If you think about what pictures we have on the internet. But the models themselves do not, as in other models, do not store the pictures that we feed them, do not store the text that we feed them. So what it gets encoded is a generalness of a thing, right? Um, Banananess or catness or apeness. So they're not biased. They give you the statistical average of the thing. So, for instance, with, with image models, you cannot get them to draw you a single banana because all pictures of bananas are usually a bunch of bananas. So you say, draw a banana, it will give you two bananas, right? There's people on the internet trying to bake the banana thing. Um, you can eventually get it, but it still kind of looks weird and you can tell there's one behind. But this sort of thing, so if you ask it to, to draw your doctor, it will be, most of the time, a male doctor. We randomize the initial prompt a little bit, so you sometimes get a woman doctor, but this idea of bias works very differently in generative AI than our common understanding of bias, which then goes to your regulation question. We're in an interesting moment in history when we have to rethink the categories we use to understand these technologies. Bias is one of them. What does bias mean for generative AI? It's something different. Same with this idea of copyright. So again, we're talking about regulation. If you think that they ingest these vast amounts of data, right? Some of it copyrighted data, but they don't store the data. So technically, that becomes kind of a gray area because they're not copying anything. They're storing likenesses of that data. So we need to probably invent new categories to regulate these systems, new ways of thinking about it. Maybe it's rights of reference, right? Instead of copyright, and we pay the people who's um, uh, content was used to train these algorithms or you have opt-outs or various other things. So I think some of these will need us rethinking the categories that we use to, to regulate. As to where they're used, um, that's a very difficult question to answer because I think regulation will always fall behind the technology. So we're in a university here. My advice to everyone is we can't just wait for the regulation to solve these problems for us. What we need is healthy public debate, part of why you're here, and education. These things are new and they work differently to how we think they work, right? For all these things, their string of numbers doesn't understand the idea of Will Ferrell or a cat or anything really. They're just probabilities of things going with other things. So educate yourselves. University of Sydney has, you know, micro-credentials and AFOs and all that, <laughs> steak knives, right? I'm wearing the brand colors here, um, but try to learn as much as you can about the systems. If I, if I can add to that, because that's an interesting point. In Japan, they're not discussing the regulation of AI. 
they trust that their population are going to be in a dialogue and learning so people would understand the limitations and what they are doing. They have this overview idea when they discuss it in the public forum, they go to the OECD or the UN, they say, no, we trust our people and our companies to do the right thing and people to understand it. That's very different from other countries, obviously. That works out well (laughs) with social media. And and on the point of um, liability, which was mentioned before, and the need of new rules, well, it depends. Uh, Example, typical example, a self-driving car, automated cars. Well, we know Currently, everybody's driving a car. We have a system of compulsory insurance. If something happens, that works relatively well because the people are going to be insured. You know that. So for self-driving cars that may have even less accidents than human drivers, it may, we may already have the solution there. We might not need anything else. The problem with AI systems for me is the scalability. So you get all the Teslas in the world and there is some kind of failure in the AI system that keeps learning from the environment. You have all of them in self-driving system, and all of a sudden, all the systems fail at the same time. And that is not an individual problem that you can solve with insurance. It becomes a social problem. The typical example that I tend to use is the thermostats. Imagine that we are all in the middle of a cold, very cold winter or a very, very hot summer. We are all using the same technology. Google Nest, for example, is the typical one. I'm doing a lot of product placement. Don't worry, <laughs> it's not. And University of Sydney. Yeah. <laughs> and all of a sudden, all of them fail at the same time because there was a push of artificial intelligence. The system autonomously decided to do a push that was tested well in the laboratory, but then in the real world, it's failing. Well, if it's the middle of winter, and did happen in 2017 in the US, by the way, it's not a, a made-up example. The, pro- the good thing about it is not that many people had the technology. But it becomes a, a problem at the scale because one person can change the batteries. Two people can call uh, like Google and be sent like a new system. If it's all of a sudden you have millions of people using and they do not have a heating system at home, then the problem is at such a scale that it becomes a social problem. And those are the things where new technologies, because we don't understand them well, we need to know how they do, and we need to preempt at least those very extreme risks. Rebecca, too, I think one thing that's really struck me about this is some of the reporting that's come out around the very human labour behind these systems. So, I mean, it'd be great if you could walk us through a bit about how the sort of work of data labelling because a lot of these systems have needed somebody sitting in a room somewhere saying, yes, a cat, that's a cat, that's an eight, or that is, uh, you know, how to make a bomb, or that is um, really explicit material and we don't want that in our system when it gets served up um, through the interface with the consumer. So, yeah, tell us a bit about that data labelling work and how we should think about that labour because obviously, like, somebody somewhere is getting exposed to the worst of the internet still which was the same sort of problems with moderation of social media as well. Exactly. And it is basically the same problems that we have with with social media. And uh, there's a lot of aspects to this. So, you know, I think there's been a a lot of expose that uh, OpenAI have been paying people $2 an hour in Kenya to label a lot of data. And, you know, the, the images or the data that they're looking at, you know, comes from some of the darkest places of humanity. So they're often exposed, you know, for many, many hours a day to, you know, really violent and really disturbing images. And that has a, obviously a significant emotional toll. And, uh, you know, I think that's a really, it's a, 
It's a fact that's been happening for a lot of our technologies for the, you know, the last few years, but it's something that we really need to keep talking about because it's not going away. And so often when you see something that's advertising, oh, we're going to have a talk about AI, here's a book about AI, there's always like blue flashy lights with like a kind of woman's face that's kind of a robot. And I don't, I don't know why the blue flashy lights. I don't, I don't know where that's coming from. That's the Getty stock image. Uh, yeah, prompt. <laughs> well, but it's it's baked into the models now. So yeah. if you if you use you know any um, mid journey or stable diffusion, you'll often get blue flashy lights of kind of a woman's robot face. But really, what's happening is that there's actual real people sitting in you know modern day sweatshops. Um, you know, in some situations, you could be calling it modern day slavery. And I think a lot of organisations. If they're going to be using these products, these technologies, and then also saying, oh, you know, we're a morally responsible company and, you know, we, we uphold, you know, the rights to human dignity and whatnot, then you have to question your use of technology that is fundamentally still relying on this very human labour. And, you know, we need to call people to account, or these companies to account. The other thing is, and, and to going back on, to bias and perspectives, is... Um, when you, we're still doing a lot of uh, reinforcement learning from humans, there's also AI reinforcement learning, which is the whole other kettle of fish. But when you're when you're basically refining and fine tuning these models, so the models kind of they they learn, you know, the likeness of a cat or or the number eight or whatnot from this big training pass they do, and then we have a lot of humans that sit there and try and feed back into these machines. Okay, well, this is correct and this is not correct, and whatnot. So those humans are often underpaid. Uh, it's often um, not diversely representative of the whole of the planet, certainly. And so that can also create these really positive feedback systems, positive as in increasing, um, with these people's biases and perspectives, whether they're good or bad, it doesn't matter, but we're reinforcing those same perspectives back into those systems. So it's kind of like a double-edged thing there. I just want to come back to the labour thing um, because it's been interesting watching the writers' strike. I don't know if people in in Hollywood, the writers' union, the WGA has been striking for many reasons, but one clause they've been fighting with the movie studios about is about AI and about the ability for studios to sort of train systems on scripts, I suppose, so they can kind of circumvent the need for real human writers. I wondered, Jose Miguel, how are you thinking about labour rights and AI? I mean, it's a huge question. We're in a university after all. What are we training people to do in 10 years' time? But do we need a new type of labour movement, I suppose, a new way to think about labour rights in this new world? Well, first of all, as with AI, this has been like a recurring theme. If you read what uh, Keynes was writing in the 1930s, he believed his grandchildren were not going to need to work at all because we'll be so productive that we'll have so much <laughs> spare time. So like, he was worried about the lack of work and what that, would do, what that would do to the human race. And the idea of replacing humans with robots has been around for a very long time. Interestingly, and probably there is that kind of the irony in all of this. Until now, robots have been replacing manual labor, the blue color that is, has been the tradition. So it has been a very stratified dialogue in which the people that were developing the technologies were replacing the labor of the people that were not developing the technologies. So if you go through the motorway and you get to a toll, before you had a human there, that you had to pay, and just now you have a machine that is just reached your driver's license and you automatically get it. Well, 
And now, what happens now? With AI, most jobs that are white-collar jobs are threatened, and that's the reality of it. And there are like many studies, even if not right now, like the current data says that that replacement is happening at a very low rate. We know that, for example, uh, banking, private banking and banking advice, it has better results if you automate it to a machine than if you trust a human. And that's probably as high as you can get like in the white-collar type of job, like kind of remuneration type thing. And then you see that they are threatening, and then it's the new twist. Well, but they cannot be creative. So you sh we should all be studying how to do creative things, and that's the kind of next thing that machines would not be able to do. And then overnight, you get ChatGPT that gets like to, it creates narratives that are quite decent, and then all those jobs are threatening again. Are they really threatening? Well, we don't know, but clearly they could be used in a way that it, some of part of the job could be replaced. For example, and let me just give you a very narrow one. When people were trying to hire um, a publicist and they were trying to do the mock-ups of advertising, before you needed someone to go and you said what you wanted, the person was going home, was drawing and then coming back and then was showing it to you, you didn't like it, was going again. Now you can do that real time because you have this software that can generate with ideas, it can generate some things. And then the person can actually narrow it down to what the client really wants and then develop something much more precise. So is that the kind of labor that is going to replace humans? Probably not, basically because of the interaction. Do we need like rules that can take that into account and uh, how some parts of the job are going to be replaced, some parts are going to be enhanced, and the worker rights are going to be protected in another, in another way? Yes. Whose worker rights? Our model normally has been about, well, at least in the Western liberal world, the trade unions model. Are they the right way of protecting the rights of workers? Probably not. So we will need to, as Sandra was saying, we will probably need twists here and there to adapt to these new realities. Is that worth going, to, uh, doing a strike and saying that they are going to be replaced and that we need, well, it needs to be taken into account. So I understand the people in Hollywood saying, let's write this somewhere so we know exactly what to expect and the rules are clear so we know what in the future we are not going to be. Mm. I feel I need to weigh in here. I'm, I'm a lapsed economist and I'm in the business school. So, <laughs> sure. um, replacing jobs. So there, there are a few issues that, that I'd highlight in, in addition to what you said. One is um, a lot of the automation that would work is in a lot of industries that are very highly regulated. Banking, medical, and so on. So these things are coming in, but um, they're coming in in, a, in particular frameworks. If you're thinking about traditional AI, so I'll park Gen AI for a second, but if you're thinking about traditional AI, a lot of the um, um, research is showing that if, if you think about diagnosing tumors and, and so on, um, the machine does it much faster than, than a human being, also has certain error rates, human plus machine gives you the best result. So in a lot of places, it will augment what people do, and we have a human plus machine. And I think COVID was an interesting... Um, Example, we can talk through that some, some other time. Um, second thing that, that is worth thinking about is um, AI might come for your job, but it's definitely coming for your job description. 
So the ways in which we do things will change. So for most of us, it might not replace us, but it will significantly alter the way in which we do things. And in that respect, it is worth thinking about AI as an assistive technology, an assistive tool. But always, so remember my cats and, and so on, like it's strings of numbers, it doesn't know anything. So when you think about it as an assistant, it doesn't encode any kind of knowledge, just words that go with other words. It doesn't, when we say it learns, it's the probabilities that those words go together. So when you think about it as an assistive technology, I urge you to think about it as an assistant, but as a, a grad school student, right? I've hired him, he's really cocky, he knows, he, like, he's really convincing, I give him stuff to do, he does help out, does, does some great things, but sometimes goes on a big bender the night before and uh, the <laughs> results in the morning are completely unreliable because I swear that's the right thing. Like, so you need to check everything that you do with, with Gen AI, that's why we keep humans in loops. Um, so assistant, amazing productivity tool in certain instances, but not a knowledge tool under any circumstances. Thanks for listening to the Sydney Ideas podcast. For more links, resources or the transcript, head to the Sydney Ideas website or subscribe to Sydney Ideas using your favourite podcast app. Finally, we want to acknowledge that this podcast was made in Sydney, which sits on the land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. It is upon their ancestral lands that the University of Sydney is built.